Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Well, we're back in Washington, D.C., continuing our series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill, and today we're speaking with Todd Lang and Fred Wagner. Todd is the Director of Transportation Planning at the Baltimore Metropolitan Council, where he oversees the Metropolitan Planning Organization's work program, including development of the region's short- and long-range transportation plans. Fred Wagner is a partner at Venable, where he focuses on environmental and natural resources issues associated with major infrastructure, mining, and energy project development. They'll give us insight into what MPOs are, how they operate, what their planning process means to the expenditure of funds, and how built environment stakeholders can engage and add value to community planning. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. The Metropolitan Planning Organizations. You know, in the workaday world out there for normal folk, I'll call it, don't have a clue what MPOs are, you know? And so I'd like to know more about how were these established? How do they operate? What do you do, Todd? So, yes, a lot of the time when I meet people, I, I spend a lot of time explaining what my job is. Uh, so that, that's an interesting point. Metropolitan planning organizations and the idea behind regional transportation planning really began back in the 60s, back during the building of the interstates, uh, when the federal government really wanted to coordinate the activities amongst various states uh, when regions are putting together their transportation systems. For instance, in the Washington, D.C. area, you have Virginia, you have Maryland, you have the District of Columbia. The federal government really decided that it makes sense for them to have regional bodies that are planning these transportation systems so that you don't have any coordination issues between the states and the local governments. So back in the 60s, they, they brought together these regional planning agencies. Uh, they were expanded in the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1965, where actual transportation funds were authorized uh, to different regional agencies. Um, most of these were kind of housed in what were known as council of governments. There's no requirement to have a council of governments, uh, but these were kind of the natural falling places for these, these regional transportation funds. Uh, and then back in the 1980s, uh, there was really a discussion about clarifying what should be the role of these things known as metropolitan planning organizations, where they focused around the main documents that are required as part of the federal process. That's our long-range transportation plan that has a 20-year horizon and is project-specific and is uh, fiscally constrained, so you can't just go planning for projects that you don't really have any idea where the money would come from. Uh, then your transportation improvement program, which is really your short-term program, which is more detailed. It's very similar to what a state consolidated transportation program or your local capital improvement program looks like, where we detail out federal transportation funding within the region. And then the work program of the Metropolitan Planning Organization, or the planning studies that go into trying to understand what the future of transportation should look like in these metropolitan regions. You said long-range and then short-term. What is short-term as far as duration? So short-term, yes. The, it's the four- to five-year plan uh, where we actually detail out the 
a specific type of federal transportation fund that goes into an individual project and whether or not that's on the scale of design or engineering, right-of-way, or actual construction. So it's really a transparent mechanism to show where federal transportation funds are being spent in the region. So does the MPO have decision-making authority or is it advisory-based? So metropolitan planning organizations are required to to adopt plans that show where federal transportation funds are being programmed. So they are a requirement of federal law. So state DOTs get their authority to spend transportation funds typically through their general assembly or their governor. Uh, Local capital improvement programs go through, you know, their local councils, commissioners, or executives. Federal transportation funds are designated to go through these metropolitan planning organizations by federal law. So it is an important compound. Yes, I think so. Fred, good to see you again. Great to be here. So you're a big fan of Todd. Tell us, what's the relationship here? Well, personal relationship, I've had the privilege of being uh, outside counsel to the Association of Metropolitan Planning Organizations, so that's one thing. Uh, But more important, I'm a fan of Todd and the people like Todd uh, around the country because the service they provide is to enforce this notion of vision and planning to expenditures and dollars. Uh, I think some of the topics we discussed previously is, you know, the rush to get dollars out and spending the dollars. And what this whole process is designed to do is to do so purposefully, carefully with an idea uh, in the, you know, when I first started in this, in this world, you know, you would do long environmental impact studies on projects and they never saw the light of day because there was never money to do them. And so they would have these big books and they'd sit up on the shelves and then nothing would happen. Todd's process and his colleagues, what they do is say, hey, look, if you're going to invest the time and effort to do that, engage the public to understand what these things are intended to do, you should have a commitment to do them. So let's make sure there's money available to it, there's a plan for it, and it fits within the overall land use and transportation plan. So not only am I a big fan of Todd, but I'm a big fan of people like Todd that do the angels' work around the country to make sure that our uh, spending is done well. I love this because there's, there is this uh, dynamic of accountability that comes into it, which I think is often a, a concern around major bills being passed where lots of money is being, and you kind of wonder... Who's got an eyeball on this? And it sounds like the MPOs are really uh, focused on ensuring things are planned appropriately and then executed appropriately down at the places where they're actually going to be executed. It's one of the big areas of metropolitan planning organizations is really projecting growth for economic uh, development and then also population centers. Uh, So our long-range plans extend out 20 years into the future. Uh, We track development to understand where those trends are. We work with our local governments on their comprehensive plans to understand exactly where the growth is intended to go. And then we help develop the transportation system to uh, facilitate that type of economic growth. So it's really an important meeting place between the state departments of transportation, the local governments, and the transit agencies to make sure we have a comprehensive system that is going to fit the growth. And, and Todd, I think the key word in your last statement was intended to go. That's That, that word of intent is, I think, what it's all about. And maybe mm-hmm. you can follow up a little bit on that, because yeah. I think that all too often the, the tendency had been to 
you know, go out and build, get stuff done. But, you know, adding that intentionality behind it seems to me to be what, what it's all about. Right. Trying to, to move policy forward in terms of the build environment, uh, trying to uh, purposely uh, make development that would fit in well with the transportation system and, and try to get to those policy goals of getting people out of single occupancy vehicles, making more multi-use development, trying to make a transportation system that works good for the people of the region. So it's interesting. So the I'm, I'm going to guess a, a series of economic impact analyses are done ahead of time. If we put this highway, this this new uh, intersection, whatever uh, we're talking about, is the project you're projecting out as that pebble hits the pond. What are the what are the economic ripples over a period of time that will occur to renewal? Because well, of course, what we see when a when a major new infrastructure project or renewal project is done, it seems that what in our space, you know, a new highway is, is put through. Suddenly, pop, 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 all these buildings start springing up around it. People are excited to take the, you know, the exits and the, and the entries and, and, uh, and commerce begins, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it takes a while for transportation systems to be built, both on the transit and the highway side. So you really need to have that focus at least, you know, 5, 10, 20 years out into the future to make sure that this all comes together in the way that comprehensive plans are are meant to, you know, develop these areas. This, this bill that was recently passed this last year, uh, 1.2, trillion dollars i my my head spins when i think of those numbers i mean i think we're all old enough this table we didn't used to talk in trillions you know everything was billions and when i was in elementary school we, we used the word zillions zillions we made, we made up the word oh it was kazillions <laughs> right those kind of things it it encompasses more than just straight cement and iron right there's a lot of discussion what this is going to have to do with climate issues and equity issues and of course the build back better bill was more centered around that which is for the time being is not on the table but how do you you know with this kind of money this kind of allocation how is this going to change the work of the MPOs or put it in a much more open focus for the public because these are huge numbers that you folks are now responsible to figure out. Sure. So uh, you've talked about it in some of your previous podcasts that there is a tremendous amount of new money. There is also an extension of the existing Highway Trust Fund program. So there's $294 billion of baseline funding, and there's about $274 billion of new funding. And that has many new interesting programs. There's a program called Protect, which is really focused around resiliency. So this is an $8.4 billion program over the next five years that is really focused on transportation projects and trying to get the system prepared for the major weather events, both on a, a you know, floodplain level, but then on a coastal level and trying to make our systems better prepared to uh, be more resilient in in the face of these major weather events that were happening. There's the carbon reduction program at $6.4 billion over the next five years where eligibility for transit and trails, really focusing on trying to get people out of single occupancy vehicles. You know, state of good repair programs for bridge and for transit with new money that's coming in really trying to address some of those backlog needs that have been identified uh, through our different programs. Uh, so, like you said, uh, 
there, there is a lot of competitive discretionary programs within this, about $100 billion worth. And MPOs are a great place to put together combined applications and thoughtful applications for regional needs because resiliency in the Baltimore region means something completely different than in the Denver region. Um, obviously, you know, we need to think about our, our local needs and MPOs are set up well to have all the right people around the table to talk about the future needs of their specific region. Hmm. So we're watching at a pretty good rate, the adoption of electric vehicles, uh, Certainly not as other countries have, but we're going to see a ramp up of that over the next few years. We're talking about, I don't know the number, uh, the billions of dollars that have been allocated for electric charging stations. Uh, does anyone remember that number? It's about $5 billion, About yeah. $5 billion. Yeah, the next five billion. And so that, of course, gets meted out across all the MPO spheres of influence across the space. So you're in the Baltimore region. And so Baltimore to DC, uh, I'm hoping therefore that there's going to be more charging stations, which will encourage people to take those, that type of transit, unless they're going to be jumping on the trains, those kind of things. Um, what about hydrogen? You're seeing this massive publication of that hydrogen's going to be coming up in the next few years. Does anything in this address that? So the, the programs do have some broad eligibility in terms of, uh, you know, the carbon reduction, some of these other areas. Uh, you know, hydrogen is an interesting one. Uh, it's typically being used on, you know, uh, local jurisdictional fleet programs where you have the infrastructure kind of built in to support uh, regular vehicles that are moving in and out of the program and have a, a defined place to kind of do that until we get to a broader uh, infrastructure for hydrogen, um, you know, as we're talking about with electrical vehicles, um, that would be the next horizon. But it certainly gives us a testing ground with some of these fleet vehicles to understand kind of what are some of the challenges of these new fuels. And I think the money is there and the flexibility is there within this new bill to try to understand what are some of the ramifications of a rollout on a national or even a regional level to understand what that could mean. Yeah, I think this is the beauty of the, the planning process. You know, you literally have the right people around the tables from uh, local governmental entities, uh, transit, transportation entities, you know, citizens, etc., to try to envision the future about what's going on. So your question is a perfect example. Uh, about four years ago, uh, Japan announced that when they were going to have the Tokyo Olympics, it was going to be the showcase for hydrogen. Why? Because Toyota went all in on hydrogen cell technology. All the buses were going to be hydrogen cells, et cetera, et cetera. Well, over the last four years since they made that announcement and then since the Olympics, there's an argument to be made that in the tussle between hydrogen and electric, electric won. Electric won. Doesn't mean that hydrogen's going away completely. No, no, it did. Yeah. But electric won. But you're sitting there as an MPO and you're sitting there with all your folks and you're saying, hey, we need to put in this infrastructure, do we need to be converting existing service stations and encouraging the placement of hydrogen facilities, or do we put our money and our resources into EV? And how do you predict that? How do you deal with that to make these kind of decisions? But that's only one decision. But are you all issued a crystal ball in this in this deal? I'm just I, see. I've always been very bad at this. I was one of those who bought one of the beta machines as opposed to the VHS <laughs> machines. So I'm always hesitant about kind of second guess what is coming down in the future. But I I think like we said, the the eligibility and the flexibility of these new programs allow for new technological advances to come into the transportation realm and have a pilot 
uh, area for us to really understand what they could mean. Mm. But the work, but the work you do is is not, you know, literally crystal balling. I mean, it's obviously applying the social sciences of demographics and other sorts of predictive models to understand where things are going. And now, for you know, for many of these regions, there's there's a history. So you not only are looking into the future, but you're basing some of these plans on, you know, what's happened in the past, what's what's been. Uh, planned, what's been built, and where are people moving. So mm-hmm. there there are trends in the past that instruct the future, and I think the social science aspects of these kind of modeling and prediction tools are getting better and better. Um, again, I, I don't think it would be like, you know, you know picking the Super Bowl winner, but uh, I, I think it is more likely than not that these plans have a fairly close relationship to what's going to be seen in a particular region. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're getting better and better at it. Um, and the thing that I, I think, I, I don't know if you do that. Do you do you go back in time to kind of compare what you said for your long-range plans in 2005 and 10 and 15 to where it is in 2022? Is that something that you all try to do to figure out how that instructs other planning? Uh, it, it's always a, a double-edged sword when we go back and look at our old plans, but we actually have building permits dating back 50 years within the Baltimore region. I know many other you know, council of governments, regional uh, programs have the same thing. So it, it is interesting and, and good to make sure that you're grounded in reality in terms of how development actually happens and what are the good drivers to development. So this is a, is authorized as a federal program. How do the states play? And are states required to match funds, contribute funds? And once that starts happening, does it start getting really mucked up? <laughs> well, yes. Uh, uh, you know, matching funds is a very important issue because uh, the playing ground across this, the country is, is different. I mean, if you think about the state gas tax levels, uh, they range from a low of 15 cents per gallon in some states all the way up to 67 cents per gallon in some states. So some states have the the ability to do matching at a much higher level and then therefore are bringing in much more competitive applications because they're bringing real local dollars to the table uh, for these types of applications. While some states are simply trying to match the base programs with their existing transportation dollars that they generate at a local level. But again, it, state boundaries are, are a tricky thing, and that's why I think MPOs were formed, because people live and work uh, at a regional level. And that's the key, is to try to understand that if you build something uh, to one state boundary, that it really needs to have a receiving mechanism at the, at the other boundary. Yeah, so, and, to, and a couple of things to, to put into the mix. Some of the states are, are passing referenda. Local referenda, city referenda, California's had you know massive referenda that have put billions of dollars into some of these transportation programs, um, and that that changes the playing field oh, you know tremendously. Dramatic, yeah. And the other thing that's that's happened since we first talked, David, is and and, and Todd, you you've probably heard this as well. Very controversial piece of guidance was issued by the Federal Highway Administration to all the state DOTs. And you mentioned you know, how the state DOTs respond to this. Well, this will be instructive about that. Because on December 16th of last year, just before Christmas, it didn't get a lot of publicity because it was just before Christmas, um, the Federal Highway Administration sent out a guidance memorandum to all the state DOTs saying, okay, well, this new money's coming in. We've extended the program. There's more money. We know that you make decisions about how to spend this money, but you know what? This is kind of how we think it should be spent. Oh, my goodness. Well, you you nailed it. And so when I was across the street over at the Transportation Research Board meeting in, in the second week of January, there were like these emergency meetings 
between the state transportation organizations and the FHWA saying, wait a minute, that's you're, you're infringing on our turf now. We get to decide. What do you mean what we should be doing? You know, And so there's been a lot of discussions, Todd, about the role of the state DOTs vis-a-vis cities, vis-a-vis transit agencies, and all this money and some of the guidance that this administration is putting forward to, to, to say, this is what we'd like to see. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing that so, as well. But you weren't talking about just the $100 billion discretionary funds. You're talking about the formula funds. The formula funds. They said even the formula funds, this is the kind of stuff that we want to see. And that well, was very controversial. How's that working out for you there, Todd? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, MPOs are the touch point for federal policy. Uh, you know, we, we are the organizations that are meant to plan and program federal transportation funds. So if, if a, a Justice 40 initiative is, is announced through executive order where you're trying to, you know, uh, put 40% of the benefits of programs towards underprivileged, underrepresented communities, the MPOs are going to be one of the places where that is going to be enforced. Uh, So we're interested in the rulemaking, uh, trying to understand kind of how you do the analysis when you're in system-wide programs and trying to allocate, you know, how much of that benefit is actually going to those specific communities. Uh, Again, some of the carbon programs, all the rest of those MPOs uh, are the place where federal policy is enacted for for these types of transportation programs. You think about placement of EV infrastructure. You asked about that in the past. Mm -hmm. That is a classic example of the intersection between the money, the states, the cities, and the planning for it. You know, you have X amount of dollars. You're trying to put in Y number of EV charging stations in and around your jurisdiction. Where do they go? Where do they go? And how do we do so equitably? So like in our region, all the EV charging stations are not in Potomac or McLean, Virginia, the high-income areas, but they're also in Prince George's County. They're also in downtown D.C. They're also in places where minority disadvantaged communities have access to that same infrastructure. That's the perfect marriage of what this planning process means to the expenditure of funds. It, it can advance so many interests at the same time. One of our roles right now is to understand what's in the IIJA or, you know, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act uh, law and and to try to explain some of the uh, implications to both our state and our local government and bring them up in terms of the conversation of where transportation dollars are going. For example, the, the, the administration announced in this memorandum, David, that highway expansion projects are not the ones that are going to be favored. They're looking for something else. Well, what if, right, how can you make that general statement? What if an MPO has spent a lot of time and effort to determine that, yeah, we need this expansion because, A, the population's moving there, B, new businesses have located there, C, uh, we've heard, you know, planning for new data centers that are going to be developed in certain areas, and so access to that, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, there's some projects that although they may not be favored by this U.S. DOT are actually the product of the planning process. And so so then what do you do? And it puts a lot of, I wouldn't say conflict, maybe just some concerns between high-growth regions and and low-growth regions Uh, in terms of 
where they are in the spectrum in terms of trying to make the transportation system fit all and serve all of the people in the region. Uh, so again, there is always that natural conflict between you know what your region looks like, what it needs, and then how you try to take the money that's coming from this infrastructure bill and try to plug it into the needs of the region. Todd, you have the perfect personality for this because you seem like a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's all I'm going to say there because <laughs> you've got to bring in a lot of contrary stakeholders and try to create some collaborative consensus, ideally, toward these plans and the execution. And, and you talked about whether or not MPOs are uh, have a, a stick uh, and are regulatory. And, and while our process is regulatory, it, that's what, exactly what it is. It's, it's meant to bring the people around the table understand exactly what the policy is of, of the federal transportation program and how it might fit in, but then ultimately come to what makes sense in terms of a regional decision. So MPO directors don't necessarily have a great shelf life <laughs> because unfortunately we are the kind of the bearer of news from the federal government sure. in terms of policy. But again, there's enough flexibility within the federal program that we can make this fit for each of our regions. It's fantastic. And you are funded through the federal government? Yes. So this, does that mean you're a federal employee? Uh, that's always an interesting question. Uh, no, we are, we are granted funds uh, through the federal government that come through the states, and then the, those funds are matched uh, by our local governments, or in our case, uh, Council of Governments. So actually, I am I work for a nonprofit, which is a Council of Governments, and there's you know those used to be the majority of them. Now they're the minority. So you can have MPOs, you know, which are uh, just at a county level, uh, and basically, and it's agenda item on the county commission program. Uh, or they can be, you know, as large as, you know, your largest council of governments that actually run construction programs. It is very different. Uh, we always like to say, if you've seen one MPO, you've seen one MPO because they are completely different across <laughs> yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we represent what is called the built environment industry, of which is right in this space. I was sharing uh, not so long ago, people are asking me, what is the built environment industry? And I said, it's everything that is built on the planet Earth, which includes ports and airports and roads and bridges and highways. And oh, by the way, uh, all the infrastructure that makes that work and all the dwellings that we dwell within. So it's a, it's a pretty big thing. So our, our industries are the same. What you're you're in one aspect of it, primarily on the transportation side of this. How does my community play here? How how might architects and engineers participate more directly in these stakeholder conversations around planning? So, as Fred had mentioned, one of the big items with metropolitan planning organizations and as federal bodies is that we're required to have a public participation element. Uh, we are we are required to be open. Uh, so typically all of the meetings of an MPO are open to the public. Uh, all of our subcommittees are open to the public. But one of the areas is we have required stakeholders. So we are required to bring in the ports people. We're required to bring in the development community, the truckers, the airport people. Uh, and then also we rely very heavily on the design engineers, the consultants out there to bring us best practices from other places across the country. 
Fred had mentioned the Association of Metropolitan Planning Organizations, which is the national organization. Uh, that's a great place where we all get together and we hear about the best practices across the country. So we're able to look at what Denver's doing in terms of crash mapping or other areas in terms of you know best practices on equity, and then rely on the consultant community to tell us kind of what is going on across the country, because they have the eyes and the ears of, of some of the best practices that are going on across the country. And we ask them to bring them into uh, our planning process so that we can try to benefit from some of the work that other regions have done, other states have done, and see if they fit into our specific region. So I just recommend, you know, if you're on the architect engineering side, you know, get to know the people at your MPO, uh, come to the meetings. It's a great place not only to get across, you know, potential project ideas, but then also to meet some of the local and state decision makers at a very congenial level. We talked about best practices and what you might lever from other areas of the country. Do we ever consider best practices from other countries who, in many cases, are far more advanced than us? And Because we're kind of stuck in some old paradigms. We are definitely stuck in some old paradigms. Uh, we, we try to pull them in from the uh, international level as best as we can. Uh, obviously, you know, the governmental structure side of the U.S. is a little different than the way that other governments are. So we try to understand kind of what that means in terms of the mechanisms of state DOTs, transit agencies, and local governments and what they control. But absolutely in terms of, you know, project design and and uh, just building into the to the build community, it really makes sense to try to go across international boundaries to try to see what works best. Yeah, I don't know if you saw in the, the, the media a fascinating article about uh, the transit space. And, and safety in the transit space, comparing what it looks like to stand on a platform in a transit station in the U.S. versus some other countries. And they were comparing some of the fatality rates in New York. Sadly, there's been, you know, over five dozen you know, fatalities on the tracks and so forth. And they showed pictures of how Japan, Paris, Brazil have incorporated infrastructure on the transit space to basically try to prevent those types of accidents by mm -hmm. putting infrastructure at the tracks, right? Things like that. It's a perfect example of the, the engineering and architectural community to say, how do we advance these issues? We want to get more people back on transit. We want to convince them it's a safe environment. How to make it a safe environment? Here's what we're doing in some other countries to do that. That's a perfect example of matching needs, consumer demand, safety and planning. And uh, it, it's it's a great to participate for your members to participate in that discussion. Oh, I think so. So many of our relationships in design intelligence extend far beyond the U.S. because we're all over the world. And many of the members, I would say over half of the member firms of what is one of our subs called the Design Futures Council practice globally. And so the way they're going to approach a transit station in London or Melbourne is honestly radically different than what's going on in Los Angeles or in New York, right? And if we, if we would just be more postured to be open to learn from other practices around the world, it could be extraordinary. And I think it add a lot of value to the work that you're doing. Yeah, internationally, a, a lot of other countries are better at pedestrian flow analysis than we are. Um, I think we're way behind the curve in that. Let's talk for a moment about smart cities, quote unquote, 
and autonomous vehicles. How in the world is that somewhat science fictional idea? Some of the, some of it truly is science fiction. Others, it's actually being realized in pieces and parts around the world. How is that being contemplated through the MPOs? I mean, connected autonomous vehicles have been a discussion for a decade now, yep. and we've been planning, you know, at the state and the regional level now. What we're trying to understand is what can local governments do now to try to support that, but then also to regulate those types of items, because states and the federal government are just barely touching on the regulatory issues that are going along with connected autonomous vehicles and smart cities. And now the local governments also have to kind of come to grips to it. Um, unfortunately, mostly local governments have to play catch-up games. We had the situation where, you know, the scooters were dropped on a bunch of cities and, and no one knew how to regulate them. So immediately there was uh, trying to understand exactly, you know, are they vehicles? Should they be on the road? Should they be on the sidewalk? How are we going to regulate that? In the MPO community, we are trying to be proactive in addressing some of these, and not only connected autonomous vehicles, but drone delivery services and some of these air mobility programs. Uh, we're trying to be proactive so that we don't have the situation with scooters and some of these other areas where they were just dropped on us and we had to immediately react and maybe not react in the best way. Yeah, but I'd say that you know this is not quite science fiction. I mean, if you're just waiting for Jetsons and then the flying cars, maybe so. But what isn't science fiction is the availability of automated technology today. There are um, projects and pilot programs in cities right now that are operating successfully, safely all around the country. And they are being used to address some of the major issues that we're facing in the country today, from uh, supply chain shortages to the shortage of drivers for certain uh, routes mm -hmm. uh, to the delivery of services in disadvantaged communities. That's happening today. Yep. And it so uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the challenge for the MPOs is, is going to be to up their games because, uh, you know, it, it's so hard to play catch up when these things are here and the potential that they present, you know, for addressing some of the major issues that the planning community, you know, tries to stay ahead of. And if you want to solve, you know, food desert issues, if you want to solve uh, issues to getting, you know, people to medical appointments, to get, you know, medical equipment and, and medications into certain communities and so forth, the, the, the promise of automation is real. Uh, and the need for planning communities to, for example, figure out how to put places for these vehicles to park, to make stops, you know, where people can pick up these vehicles. Are there, you know, depots or local central areas, et cetera, you know, shuttle services to get from certain communities to a, a train station to, to solve the last mile issues. This is happening now. And so it's the perfect challenge for the planning community. You think about the future, but you need to think about now and envision how that can be applied to your planning. It's, it's not an easy exercise. Certainly, it's a very exciting one, though. Extraordinary conversation. Thank you both for being with me. This was unbelievably enlightening, and I'm going to encourage our stakeholders. They need to look up their MPO in their area. They need to engage. If nothing else, they need to come and listen and then try to understand how can I add value to these conversations. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.